Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, Rick, each week we do a program where we take current events and we look at them in the framework of Bible prophecy. This week we're going to focus on a book that 25 years ago our father wrote, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and the book is entitled Sound the Trumpets. It's how he learned and studied and was able to focus on events that were happening and how they fit into Bible prophecy. That's right, Jimmy. The book explores what he called the four major trends of Bible prophecy. Aliyah, or immigration of the Jewish people, anticipation for peace, alignment of the nations, and the arrangements for the temple. This week, Jimmy, we're going to talk a little bit about that book, and even for the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about it, and we'll kind of revisit it again. We'll do so, you and I will talk about it, as well as Dave Dolan. He was another man who had a ringside seat to history and Bible prophecy being fulfilled there in Israel, and so we're going to look at that history, and we're going to maybe update it just a little bit. Dave and I were together. We started off in Israel. We'll talk about that story and uh, looking forward to Dave's recollections of the events of history that took place in the nation of Israel. On the program today, also Paul Scharf will look at five presidents that helped in the establishment of the nation of Israel again and the reason why it's important for America and believers around the world to understand God's program for the Jewish people. Well, let's get started, Rick. We've got a lot of important news to catch up on, and we'll start with our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I've got Ken Timmerman with us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's a man with lots of experience, an author, an analyst. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Ken, I was very uh, eagerly anticipating our interview today because I am very interested to see what you are going to say about the biggest news story or one of the biggest news stories of the week, the mysterious death of Progozin, the the man who attempted the coup a couple months ago. This is just a, a crazy story, not completely unexpected, but tell us what you know about this, Ken. Fergoson was leaving Moscow on a private jet uh, that belonged to the Wagner Group going towards St. Petersburg with his number two in the Wagner Group when people uh, on the ground later on said they heard a large explosion and then the plane crashed within 30 seconds, falling from 28,000 feet up in the sky. It appears that it was hit by some kind of anti-aircraft missile, not a bomb on board. Uh, if you look at the footage of the plane itself, the wreckage, there are uh, pockmarks in the wing uh, suggesting uh, the kind of uh, debris that would come from a missile on the outside, not a bomb on board. Now, the question obviously is who killed Prigozhin? Was it Putin? Many people think it was. But Putin, I believe, and we've discussed this on the show, I think that Putin actually came to terms with Prigozhin. I think he forgave Prigozhin for that march on Moscow, that aborted march on Moscow, which was really aimed at the military, not so much at Putin. Uh, A very good friend of mine, Dr. Steve Bryan, who used to be an undersecretary of defense during the Reagan administration and follows these things very, very closely. He he believes that it was the GRU, the Russian military intelligence that shot down the plane. Why? Because they wanted to take back the Wagner group. Uh, They see the Wagner group 
as competition for the military. Remember, Prigozhin was most uh, critical of the military leadership, not of Putin, but of the military leadership for the way that they were managing the war in Ukraine. And the GRU, of course, has the kind of uh, anti-aircraft missiles that were probably used to shoot down that plane. So you've got motive and you've got the means. Uh, now, uh, is that ever going to a court of law? Somehow, given the way the Russian system works, I kind of doubt it. All eyes will be kept on that situation as it continues to develop, uh, obviously, worldwide consequences there. Well, all this is taking place against the backdrop of the Ukraine war. Putin's and Russia's attempt to go in and attack Ukraine has been going on for several years now. And and it looked like there was a counteroffensive that Ukraine was going to mount that was really going to hurt Russia. Is that the case? Well, the counteroffensive has been going on since June, Rick, and uh, we've been hearing about it in dribs and drabs. The Ukrainians have not uh, been very talkative about it. And I think one of the reasons is because they have not had any huge victories. They've retaken some ground in the east of the country, but clearly they have failed in what was their biggest objective, and that was to take uh, Mariupol on the coast so they could cut Russia off from Crimea. That was apparently the strategic objective the U.S. government has been leaking to reporters at the, the New York Times and elsewhere, that that was their objective and that so far they failed. The other thing the Americans have been leaking is that the Ukrainian high command has been overly dispersing its forces. It seems like they're trying to attack in too many places at once instead of concentrating their forces and having a major breakthrough the Russian lines. And, you know, as we've said many times on the show, the Russians have three defensive lines. You know, they've got minefields and trenches, and then they've got the, the men and the artillery in that third line. And so far, the Ukrainians are getting mauled just going through the minefields, even with all the Western equipment that we have been supplying them for the past year. Well, keeping tabs on the progress of both the Russian offensive and the Ukrainian counteroffensive is difficult. Before we finish this interview, I'd like to talk to you a little bit how we can find out what is truly going on or at least get our best guess because that's probably all we can do. But before I do that, one more geopolitical subject that I would like to talk to you about. The BRICS economic bloc is inviting several new nations, including Iran and Saudi Arabia. Well, that's right. And BRICS, remember, is this organization that kind of set up to be a a counter to the G8 and to the Western bloc. You have Russia, China, Brazil, India originally, then South Africa. And recently, they have just added at this recent summit this week, they agreed to bring six more countries in, including Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and the Islamic regime in Iran. Now, this is important because these countries together uh, account for 40% of the world's population, China, India, the two most populous countries in the world, they also account for 25% of the world's GDP. You add to that now the power of oil supplies from Saudi Arabia and Iran, and you have a very potent, potentially very potent economic and political alliance. How closely will all of these countries uh, become? Uh, it's unclear. I think the Saudis and the Emiratis are trying to have a foot in both camps. They've been very disturbed at the positions that the Biden administration has taken towards them and especially towards the Iranian regime 
and their nuclear weapons program, and they are seeking a hedge. They're seeking an insurance policy, and I think that's why they're joining now with Russia and China. I don't see them yet uh, taking the what I would consider to be the fatal step of selling their oil in Russian rubles or in Chinese yuan. That would be uh, a very important, a major step. It would do tremendous damage to the dollar worldwide. It would do damage to the American economy. I don't see them doing that yet, but you know that could come along in a couple of years. So this is really a major development, expand the BRICS uh, uh, alliance. How it plays out in the future, we don't know yet. Well, one final question, Ken, before I let you go. The news that is coming out of Russia and Ukraine, essentially uh, all over the world, but this whole Russia and Ukraine crisis is kind of exemplifying what's going on. It is really hard to understand what's going on, and it may not be just the fog of war. We've talked about that before, but it does seem like there's news organizations with agendas, there's politicians with agendas, and it's hard to find out what is truly going on so that we as citizens can make decisions such as who to vote for in upcoming elections, different things like that. If you could, Ken, could you just talk to us about how you determine the accuracy of your news? Well, first, Rick, I go to sources. I go to people that I trust or sources that I trust, uh, and I try to see what appears to be balanced, what appears to be rooted in ground truth. People who are reporting from the ground in Ukraine, there are not a lot of them. Sometimes the BBC has been uh, doing this. Sometimes you have to go to military bloggers from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the study for the Institute of War by General Jack Keane has been a tremendous resource for information on the war, precisely because they're compiling all of this information from sources on the ground. I am very concerned when I listen to politicians in Washington. I'm also very concerned when I listen to a guy like Colonel Douglas McGregor, who is a favorite of Tucker Carlson, and I love Tucker Carlson and, and have worked with him in the past, but Douglas McGregor is a Russian stooge. He's a former U.S. Army colonel. Uh, he claims to have been an advisor to the Trump Pentagon during the last administration. But he was on just this week saying Ukraine has lost 400,000 soldiers in the war so far to Russia. That is about eight times more than any other estimate that I have seen from any other source, except perhaps from the Kremlin. Uh, it's absolutely absurd. So first you have to separate out people who are purveying what are clear falsehoods, like Douglas McGregor. Then you can try to get down into more granular detail. But you know the war in Ukraine is not all that different, Rick, from looking at the indictments of President Trump. Uh, you have a news media in the United States which tends to report one side of the news, and all of them, Rick, CNN, ABC, uh, NBC, the rest, they reinforce each other in reporting this one side of the news. When you see something like that happening, when you see a kind of gang up on the news, be careful, be wary, look for alternate sources and look for people who have their ear to the ground, not that are spouting propaganda. Excellent advice. And we hope that our listeners, when they choose a source, they look at us as a valued resource because that is what we are here to do. That is what you do for us. We appreciate you coming on every week and kind of helping us sift through these stories. Well, thank you so much, Ken. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. Always so very important, Rick, to be careful who you listen to. Well, we got to take a break. And when we come back, our Middle East news update with our good friend David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Survivors and activists gathered at several sites in northwest Syria this week to mark the 10-year anniversary of chemical attacks that killed over 1,400 people. On September 21, 2013, Syria's government attacked a town held by opposition forces with rockets containing sarin, one of the most toxic chemical warfare agents. Samuel of Redemptive Stories says, The use of chemical weapons is a red line that unfortunately was crossed and it caused significant loss of life. This is not the first time, nor at the current rate will it be the last time. The Syrian Network for Human Rights has recorded at least 222 chemical attacks in Syria since 2012. And yet hope remains. God has done some exciting, amazing things. People are coming to faith and churches are being established. And if you're a Christian living in the United States today, you'd probably agree that our society looks drastically different than it did 10 years ago. Ted Esler of Missio Nexus says, This is an era of mass flux and change, whether it's the topic of sexuality and sexual identity, immigration, all sorts of things are changing and shifting right now. We need to, as mission agencies and as globally focused churches, understand those changes and get ahead of the change curve. Each year, Missio Nexus holds a forum about topics like these at its leadership conference. The three-day event will be held in Orlando, Florida at the end of September. Most trade associations are there to promote the industry. Well, our industry happens to be the Great Commission. The mission of Missio Nexus is to catalyze relationships, ideas, and collaboration within the Great Commission community. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, and joining us this week, as he does every week, is journalist and author Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. And as every week, Rick, I'm glad to do it. And we're glad to have you as well. Well, David, the first thing we'd like to talk about this week, unfortunately, terror attacks have struck Israel again. Could you give us the details? Yes, Rick, we had two uh, serious terror attacks, leaving three Israelis dead and another wounded. The first was last Saturday, when a father and son who live in Ashdod on the coast went up to the Palestinian village of Huwara. Now, people may remember that name because there was a terror attack emanating from there earlier this year, and Israel went in with a major military operation there afterwards. But right after the attack, we had um, some of the surrounding Jews that live in areas around there attack that town and burnt cars and all of that happened. So why these two Israelis would go there to get their car air conditioner fixed is a bit of a mystery, but I used to go into the Palestinian towns to get my car work done because, frankly, it's half the price of any Israeli place. So they were uh, at a car wash after getting this repair done when they were shot by a terrorist. He was captured. He said he first checked to make sure they were an Israeli Arabs because they were Sephardic Jews, so darker skinned. Uh, Their family uh, came from Morocco and they tend to be a bit darker than the Ashkenazi Jews usually and hard to tell them apart from Arabs really. 
they were shot dead, the father and son. And then uh, two days later, an Israeli mother, a 42-year-old woman with her young daughter, were shot in a car that their neighbor was driving them to Jerusalem in. They were going up there to visit relatives, and he had some business there. So they went along for the ride. The car was sprayed with bullets. So both of these involved guns. And soon after that, Rick, we had two things happen. The IDF struck at Iranian positions near Damascus in a daytime attack, which is very unusual. And also the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, went to the scene of that attack uh, around the Hebron area where the woman was killed. And her daughter was in the car, her young daughter, watched the whole thing, but thank God she wasn't hit by any of the bullets. But They haven't been at the scene of a terror attack that quickly and together in many, many moons. So that was unusual. They made some strong statements. Netanyahu said, we're in the middle of a terrorist onslaught that is backed by Iran. He said, we now have Iran not only funding Hamas and Islamic Jihad, but giving them orders. He said, we've seen a sharp increase in the use of weapons in these attacks guns, etc. That's been going on for over a year, really. And as a result of that, on Tuesday, they held an emergency meeting of the security cabinet. It was supposed to be was scheduled for September 10th. They brought it up uh, after the um, security minister, Ben Gavir, demanded that they meet right away and discuss this wave of terror that uh, he called it that was going on. He called for a return to targeted killings of Palestinian terrorists. The defense minister rejected that. But afterwards, they issued a statement again, uh, echoing what Netanyahu had said, that Iran is involved in all this. They're behind it. And we're not going to sit still for that. And that Iran can expect responses from us. Well, they'd already the day before bombed uh, near Damascus, uh, one of their positions, but indicating that further action may be coming. So um, a situation tense. And of course, as always, the Israelis have to remain uh, vigilant in the midst of all of this. Well, they certainly do. And we've talked often about the threat that Iran poses to Israel. And this is through their proxies. This is through terror that they are funding. But they have also a military threat from Iran. Now they are saying that they have drones that are capable of striking Israel from Iran. Well, yes, Rick, actually, they unveiled their latest drone. They've had earlier versions of this, but their latest called the Mohajer 10. It can carry a 660-pound warhead, they said. It can fly 130 miles an hour, and it can go, most importantly, well over 1,000 miles, 1,240 miles to be precise, meaning it can strike all of Israel. They unveiled this at a special military show on the same day that the security cabinet was meeting uh, in Jerusalem on Tuesday. And uh, they had a poster behind it uh, showing a large picture of it. And uh, above it in Farsi, their language, and also in Hebrew, was a picture of the Demona nuclear reactor that Israel uh, possesses in the uh, southern Negev desert. And uh, there was a a slogan in both of those languages saying, you will go back to the Stone Age. In other words, we're going to use these weapons to attack Israel and to destroy it. Whether it can carry a nuclear warhead or not, we don't know. But even a 660-pound warhead is certainly a powerful one. and could take out the Knesset building, for instance, or anything like that. So the threat of a drone, again, they are low-flying. They're hard to spot on the radar. And Israel really doesn't have the 
anti-weapon systems like the Iron Dome, which can take out higher flying rockets and slower flying rockets, but these drones could slip in across the border from Jordan and, and do a lot of, uh, of damage, and uh, the Israelis are very concerned about that. Well, as we said earlier, they will remain vigilant there, but this is certainly a, a situation to keep an eye on. Well, I'd like to expand our conversation to the greater Middle East, and we've talked in the past about the Abraham Accords and especially recently attempts by the United States to kind of escalate this normalization process between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And there are so many different components. Of course, Saudi Arabia, at the behest of China, has reestablished relationships with Iran. We know that the Biden administration has had a very interesting policy when it comes to Saudi Arabia, initially not talking to them at all, but then all of a sudden now they are on the heavy offensive to try to get this normalization deal. Plus, you've got the Palestinian people mixed in there, the Palestinian Authority, and how are they going to approve a peace deal? So many different things taking place, and now also they are bringing the Temple Mount into this equation. Can you tell us, I know I've thrown a lot of things at you, but can you tell us the status of what's going on in this deal with Israel and Saudi Arabia? Well, it continues to be reported in the media, but the U.S. administration hasn't confirmed it uh, fully. They do say talks are going on with the Saudis, but it's being reported that a deal has been struck, that the U.S. will give Saudi Arabia some security guarantees if Iran does turn around and attack them, despite the reestablishment of relations that you mentioned. And also they want help with a non-weaponized nuclear program is what they're calling it. Uh, Whether that's part of the deal, we'll see. But yes, it was announced on uh, Sunday, I think it was, in uh, Saudi Arabia that they have asked Jordan to allow them, the Saudis, to basically become the custodians of the Temple Mount. Now, that was uh, formally granted to Jordan in the 1994 peace uh, treaty that Israel and Jordan signed. Your late father was there. I was there when that was signed in the desert between the two countries. And they have been trying for some years to um, kind of push aside the Jordanians and say, well, we control Mecca and Medina, our two holiest sites, and now we really want to control the Temple Mount. But we'll use Jordan as the means of doing that. So basically, they said they would set up a consulate uh, via Jordan where Palestinians in East Jerusalem can go. And they would sort of become the new guardians of the Palestinians. There was criticism, has been criticism for some time in the Palestinian street uh, over Jordan's role in the Temple Mount, on the Temple Mount and other things, saying they're too lax. They don't really, you know, stand up when Israel sends police forces up there and this sort of thing. And there's been demands for a greater, more assertive position. And of course, Turkey, we've discussed this in the past. President Erdogan, he also wants a greater role in Jerusalem and in uh, with the Palestinians. Basically, he wants to reestablish the Ottoman Empire, it seems. So they're tussling with each other. But it'll be interesting to see if the Saudis are granted this. Uh, the reports say the Jordanians are not very eager to give up even the formal role that they have, but uh, they uh, may be doing that. And I can tell you this, the Israelis are not going to be that thrilled either because they know that the current Saudi leader, um, well, he's old and dying, but his son, uh, Bin Salman, is friendly towards the West and basically wants the U.S. support, as 
we're talking about. But uh, many of his cousins and the other princes and that are not in favor of that. Some of them are still hardline Muslims that uh, were backing al-Qaeda, etc. And um, there's a worry that if Saudi Arabia gets its foot in the door and there is a change of uh, position in Saudi Arabia, then Israel will have yet another enemy inside of its own borders. And this would strengthen Hamas and Islamic Jihad as well. So a controversy, the Temple Mount remains at the center of a lot of disputes. And of course, we know biblically speaking, that will be the case until the end of time. Well, that is correct, David. Zechariah 12.2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. Well, David, we appreciate your Middle East news update. Talking earlier with Ken Timmerman, we realized that we have to go to trusted news sources to get our news. And you are certainly a trusted news source for us. We appreciate what you do to keep our listeners informed. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Happy to do it, Rick. God bless. Great job as always, David. And of course, you're going to stick around and give us your recollections as we are talking about the four major trends of Bible prophecy in your years that you were there. And this week, we'll be focusing on the return of the Jewish people making Aliyah to the land of Israel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. As we said at the outset of the program, we'll be focusing on the book, Sound the Trumpets, or the Four Major Trends of Bible Prophecy. In the next half hour, we're going to talk with Dave as he remembers the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. That's the Aliyah of the Jewish people. And then we'll talk with Paul Scharf as he focused on five presidents that helped in this return and establishing the state of Israel, the importance of America being a part of that process, and how that has helped the Jewish people to return to the land of Israel. Rick, we've got David Dolan standing by and his recollection of the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Well, that's right, Jimmy. David has agreed to come back and talk to us a little bit. Now, we are looking at 25 years since Dad wrote his book, Sound the Trumpets, and essentially we're looking at four trends, four major trends that were setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. David has agreed to join us to talk a little bit about these trends. David, thank you for coming back. Glad to be with you. David, as we look at these trends, they have continued to progress. One reason that I thought I'd love to talk to you about this and get an update is you were an eyewitness to this history. Just a little bit about your background. You could tell us you were in Israel for over 30 years as a journalist. You worked with the church. You were involved in ministry and journalism and all kinds of things. Could you give us just a little bit of information about yourself? 
Well, Rick, I first moved over to um, Israel in late 1980. It was there that I met you, Jimmy, in uh, 1984, I think, working there. And you loaned me a microphone at a press conference when mine broke down, which I appreciated. But uh, yes, I was supposed to be just one year in Israel with a group called Project Kibbutz. That was uh, young Christians from all over the world. Uh, We were from eight different countries on my team. Of 14 of us gathering in Israel and living on kibbutz settlements. Of course, those are collective farms, basically, with industry as well. And I was assigned with my teammates to a northern Israeli kibbutz called Hagoshrim, which is Hebrew for the bridge builders. Uh, but right along the border with Lebanon. And we were warned by the head of the group that that kibbutz was sometimes shelled from across the border from South Lebanon, where in those days Yasser Arafat had a mini-state. He'd been kicked out of Jordan in 1970 by King Hussein and set up shop in South Lebanon in the late 70s. That was opposed by the Lebanese Christians for the most part, and some of the Shiites as well, and even some of the Sunnis. And there was a lot of fighting going on between them. Israel got involved in 1978, and uh, when we went there in 1980-81, there was still activity. We had rockets crash down on the kibbutz several times. An Israeli army base was right next door, so they were usually targeting it, and some just strayed towards us. So we spent many, many hours down in a bomb shelter. We were learning a a new song that one of our teammates wrote called Hiding Place, You Are My Hiding Place, and singing that, and the Israelis would hear us down in the bomb shelter, some of the people up above, uh, and come down and listen and that sort of thing. But it gave us many opportunities to uh, be still and know that he is God because it was a serious situation. And then I went on to uh, move into South Lebanon, an invitation to work at an American-based Christian radio station, The Voice of Hope. And I went there in uh, April of uh, 1982. I was the news director. Well, in June, Israeli forces marched en masse into Lebanon to push that PLO mini-state to the north. And eventually, Arafat, of course, was pushed out of Lebanon altogether and went over to Tripoli, Libya, and set up shop there. I was on the front lines. I saw Israeli and Syrian aircraft fight overhead in the valley where the radio station was located in South Lebanon. In fact, the largest air battle since World War II took place there in 1982, and it involved Syrian Russian MiGs, as some say that there were Russian pilots actually in some of those MiGs against mostly uh, American-built aircraft that Israel was operating. So that was very dramatic. We had one Russian MiG come down right next to the station, and the, the engineer, a Lebanese man, he went out, looked through the rubble, and he came in happily saying, hey, hey, here's the part for the transmitter we need that I ordered from the United States, but here it is, and it came from Moscow. So we all had a interesting laugh over that but uh, we had terrorists uh, you know after us and trying to blow up our cars roadside bombs we had to watch out for that and indeed they did uh, blow up the radio station just a few months after i left in 1984 in april some terrorists came in and set off some explosives but only two people were killed i say only because many more lived upstairs mostly lebanese staff members and a bunch of them had just left 
to go see the parents of one of them, and so they were spared. But I moved then to Jerusalem. That's when I met Jimmy and worked there for IMS News, which was a Christian news network. I also worked for CBN television and radio there in Jerusalem. And then when the first Palestinian uprising broke out in December of 1987, uh, I was approached by CBS. And I point out that is not the Christian broadcasting service, a secular network, of course, and in those days, the largest uh, radio news network in the States. This was before there was CNN or Fox. And I reported for 12 years for them. It covered many, many stories that had biblical significance. I knew of that. And even during the Gulf War of 1991, I was able to go into that in one of my interviews live with the network all over the United States. Uh, I was asked, well, what is the spiritual significance? Why would Saddam Hussein be so determined to destroy the Jewish state of Israel? What's behind that? And I was able to get into some of the uh, religious uh, discussions and some of the spiritual dimensions of that, which uh, was not normal on CBS, although I did cover Christmas every year. I've mentioned this before on the program uh, for CBS out in Bethlehem, and I would interview people, and I would always choose the ones, the comments that were the most about the Lord and about his birth and about all that, as opposed to Santa Claus and <laughs> politics, and send those to New York, and many of those uh, were aired on the network. Well, David, obviously a very interesting life you led. You were able to see and do many things. I think uh, after having and hearing all that, we need to write a book, you and I. I can write a book about your life. You saw so many things. I'd be glad. But not only did you have an eyewitness view to history, but more importantly, you had an eyewitness view, a bird's eye view of prophecy being fulfilled. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about. And we relate it back to the Sound the Trumpets book that we wrote. First thing that we talk about there is Aliyah, or the immigration of the Jewish people. And we know the creation of the Jewish state, one of the greatest examples of Bible prophecy being fulfilled, and then the return of the Jewish people to the land. Tell us what you observed and you saw concerning Aliyah, or immigration back to Israel. Well, that was one of the first stories that I reported for CBS. Of course, the Soviet Union, I began in uh, uh, 1988, as I said, and uh, it was already crumbling, the communist regime in the former Soviet Union. It was already showing signs of disappearing. And just a couple of years later, that's what happened. And uh, I was aware of the prophecies I mentioned, uh, I think, a few weeks ago on the program that there is a prophecy in uh, Jeremiah that says, I will say to the north, give them up, implying that they would be, this is Jews uh, returning to Israel, that they would be physically held back from uh, uh, leaving for Israel, which, of course, was the case uh, in the Soviet Union, the famous Refusenik movement that was trying to um, reverse that and uh, eventually did so. And it goes on to say, do not say to the South, um, uh, imprison them. Well, the uh, Ethiopian Jews to south of Israel were basically also not allowed by the governments there to move to Israel. And uh, in the 90s, both of these things happened. Actually, the Ethiopian immigration aliyah began in the 80s, as is mentioned in your book, uh, detailed in your book. And uh, Jimmy and I, uh, Jimmy Jr. and I both covered that as journalists in Jerusalem. And that was during the Christian uh, radio reports before CBS. But I was already with CBS when the Russian aliyah began in 
in the early 90s and of course eventually over a million uh, mostly Jews some of them were non-Jewish spouses of Jews or relatives but mostly Jews that moved back to Israel the largest wave of immigration from any one place in Israel's modern history and that was very of course significant biblically and prophetically and I was able to that continued into the 2000s and I was able to discuss that on a weekly basis when I began recording with your late father uh, on this program prophecy today that's 20 some years ago I believe and uh, that was always exciting and your dad was excited about it and I was too because we understood we weren't always able or I wasn't always able to say on the secular CBS network what the prophetic implications were of what I was reporting, but I knew in my heart what they were. And as I said earlier, I occasionally had a chance to do that and just blessed the Lord for the fact that he was continuing to build up Zion, continuing to restore Jerusalem as the center of Jewish life around the world. And I remember one report in particular, Rick, where I said that uh, for the first time in history, a majority of the Jews on earth are believed to be living in Israel. Uh, at that time and before then, the largest community, of course, was in the United States, where it's still quite a large community, although many American Jews are not at all practicing Judaism or even some interested in being labeled Jewish. But in Israel, you are Jewish, you are Israeli, and uh, it's definitely now the largest and most vibrant Jewish community, just as not just Jeremiah, but Isaiah, Ezekiel, we can go on and on. The minor prophets all said this would happen, and of course, of course Moses even said uh, you would be exiled from the land, but you would eventually be returned to it. Isaiah specifically says two times the Jews would be expelled uh, and two times returned. And as I pointed out before, this is the second return of the Jewish people in history to their ancient homeland being completely thrown out by the Romans nearly 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and yet Jews remained all over the earth, distinct people as the Bible indicated they would, and now back in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, all the ancient biblical cities, Bethel, Bethel, Jericho even has some Jews living in it, Hebron has a Jewish community, all according to the scriptures, all prophesied in the scriptures and coming true in our day tangible evidence of Bible prophecy being fulfilled. Well, David, we appreciate what you do, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Happy to do it, Rick. God bless. David Dolan always does a great job. Uh, Our book, Sound the Trumpets, Four Major Trends of Bible Prophecy. And really, Rick, that helps me. Understanding those four major trends is how I frame all of what's happening in our world today and the news and the current events that we examine in the light of God's prophetic word it all fits in there. And when you see and you understand this, this helps you to keep a perspective, helps us to do what we do. Well, last week we started a series and uh, uh, I had my good friend Paul Scharf join with us last week. Paul, welcome to the program again. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be back with you. Paul, you did a phenomenal job on your series, Patriarchs and Presidents. I watched your FOI Equip series on the YouTube channel, which, by the way, we want to make sure we give that information out to folks. You said you really need to have four books in your library that you would read. Give us those four books. 
Sure, Jimmy. This class was for FOI Equip, and people can find the information you're talking about at foiequip.org. That's a ministry that is provided freely by the Friends of Israel for people to learn, and they can watch these lectures that I gave on our YouTube channel there, as you said. And in the course of this series, I I said if this were an academic course, we'd have four textbooks or collateral reading, if you will, and the primary one would be Elwood McQuaid, a great leader of the Friends of Israel for many years, and his book is called It Is No Dream. That's published by the Friends of Israel. It talks about Israel, prophecy, and history, the whole story. Then uh, to look at the other side of the equation, I really recommend, and it's a real page-turner, Jimmy. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Our friend Erwin Lutzer has a great book called Hitler's Cross, mm. how the cross was used to promote the Nazi agenda. Mm-hmm. Then a really new book uh, by my boss, Chris Katalka, uh, called Israel Always. It's on the order of McQuaid's book, but it's brand new, concise chapters, easy to read, tremendous information. And then a fourth one, a little more uh, theological and historical, Dr. Thomas Ice, The Case for Zionism. Those books would really give uh, anyone the foundation for looking at the material we're covering here in this course. Yes, uh, those are great books. I've read Elwood McQuaid's book. I've read uh, Erwin Lutzer's book. I've also read Chris's book, which I just read in March when I was in Israel. It came out. We did an interview with Chris. So, folks, these all should be a part of your library that will help you in uh, understanding God's program for the Jewish people. He's not finished with them yet. Why it is so important that we as believers— realize that God still has a plan for the Jewish people. Well, Paul, last week we started the program. You talked about the Geneva Bible, how the study notes of the Geneva Bible helped our forefathers that were establishing America to understand Israel's role in God's plan. So that was a great understanding and explanation. But you also mentioned there were five presidents, and these five presidents had a role in helping America stay the course as they blessed Israel. Oh, Jimmy, you know, there's just so much that we could consider as we think about the history of our country. And I would have to say this in all fairness, almost every president that we've ever had has probably said uh, something beneficial about the people of Israel and the Jewish people. Now, whether they all meant that entirely from their heart, uh, whether they truly understood the impact of what they were actually saying, only the Lord knows. But if people want to see a sampling of some very interesting quotes, including things that uh, some presidents said about the Jewish people going back to their homeland long before the modern state of Israel, uh, they don't have to take my word for it. Go to jewishvirtuallibrary.org tremendous resource that gives you in one place there on their website quotes from our presidents. Mm. So five presidents that I picked out and just spoke about a little bit of each one is they each had a very impactful role in the history and the development of relations between our nation here in the United States and the people of Israel were George Washington and then jumping way ahead, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump. Mm. Well, why did you pick these men? Well, 
George Washington had an instrumental place, of course, as he's called the father of our country, mm-hmm. but he also made an incredibly important visit to Newport, Rhode Island, on August 17th of 1790, uh, to thank the people of Rhode Island for ratifying the Constitution of the United States. And also, this was a, a political visit. Washington's team was really selling what we call the Bill of Rights, uh, and what we consider our First Amendment and our right to religious freedom. Mm. And in the course of that visit to Newport, Rhode Island, he met with a dignitary from the synagogue Yeshua Israel, which is today named after a prominent family from that time and called the Turo Synagogue. And it's a national historic site that people can visit, and they have tremendous information on their website as well. And as a result of his visit to the people of Newport, including the delegation from the synagogue, Washington wrote a letter that has uh, had an incredible impact in our nation's history. Uh, Taking this from the George Washington Institute for Religious Freedom, it said that more than one historian has described the letter as the single most important document in American Jewish history. Mm. And uh, this letter is so beautifully written, but let me just point out a key phrase in it. Washington said to the people of Newport, Rhode Island, in describing the impact that our what we know as the First Amendment would have on the United States, He said, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For, happily, the government of the United States, and here he's actually quoting the Jewish gentleman who had spoken to him during his visit, and he quotes it back in this letter that he writes. And he says, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution, no assistance, Mm. requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. And he goes on and he quotes from Micah 4, verse 4, and he ends the letter with a prayer. And uh, I dare say, I don't know of any president or any candidate today who might be able to write a letter exactly like Washington. What a start that was for our country. Mm. Okay, so that was George Washington. Harry Truman. Well, Harry Truman, of course, was the president who uh, acknowledged the Declaration of Independence for the State of Israel on May 14, 1948. Mm. And this is Uh, obviously of tremendous import for all the events that have happened down to our time. Uh, Elwood McQuaid, in his book on pages 103 to 105, goes into some very interesting detail of the wrangling going on behind the scenes, even very divisive uh, conversation among Truman's advisors. And uh, yet God providentially brought a man into Truman's life from his past, a man named Eddie Jacobson, uh, who had served with Truman in World War I. And he convinced him to reconsider this whole issue of the, uh, the 
independence of the state of Israel being formed. And Truman, of course, had a biblical background and knowledge from his upbringing, and he was proud to make the uh, declaration. He said, in fact, quote, I am proud of my part in the creation of this new state. Our government was the first to recognize the state of Israel, end quote. Mm. President Harry Truman, uh, God used him in his providence, of course, in in many ways, in bringing an end to World War II and in the formation of the modern country that we know of today as Israel. Yes, and that was a pivotal point. I remember people telling me, I was not alive back then, Paul, but I remember people telling me that when that declaration was made in Tel Aviv on a Friday afternoon, May 14th, 1948, that they thought that this was it, that the rapture of the church would happen any moment after that. And uh, <laughs> it was a very important, pivotal moment in history. Well, Jimmy, we go next to uh, Richard Nixon, who may be an unlikely candidate for our list. Uh, he's allegedly said to have you know, spoken some things that were anti-Semitic, perhaps. And yet, Richard Nixon had a pivotal role in helping the people and nation of Israel at the time of the Yom Kippur War in October of 1973, when many people, Jimmy, may not realize how close the world was to nuclear war. And failing to use nuclear weapons, Israel could have simply been wiped off of the map. Mm. And it was because of President Nixon and his help in response to Prime Minister Golda Meir, that Israel was able to overcome incredible odds against them and stand their ground and, and without using nuclear weapons, survive through the Yom Kippur War of 1973. That's great history, and I know a lot of our folks that are listening will remember watching on the nightly news the Yom Kippur War and what was taking place moment by moment as it took place back then. And of course, Paul, your favorite, President Ronald Reagan. Yes, Jimmy, Ronald Reagan was president from when I was in sixth grade through I was in college. And I guess in, in my mind, I just kind of always thought he'd be in that place. Uh, he is my favorite. And there's so much that could be said about his relationship with the people of Israel and we were amazed to see some of these things when we visited the Reagan Library, my wife and I, a few years ago. And the wonderful thing is, uh, as a modern president, there's so much people can see about these things on YouTube from the Reagan Foundation and the Reagan Library. And in particular, they can go there and actually watch for themselves what happened when Reagan welcomed uh, Prime Minister Menachem Begin in September of 1981, and said some amazing things about even the prophecies of Ezekiel, Reagan did, that I think people will find very interesting. Of course, we look at President Donald Trump and his his contribution to Israel and helping Israel and the Jewish people. He was the fifth, of course, the closest uh, down in the end of, uh, of our line of presidents. Uh, of course, we know of the monumental effects of moving our embassy mm. to the city of Jerusalem. Also, the Abraham Accords have lots of material about those contemporaneous to the events yes. at uh, 
foi.org if people want to see recent commentaries that were written at the time that those things developed. But uh, Donald Trump was uh, very outspoken in his support of the people of Israel during his time as president. No question about that. Yes, and for sure, him making that moment in history, that milestone, advance the narrative of Bible prophecy for sure on, on God's mm. timetable. So, Paul, what are we to do with this information? How does this help us as believers? Well, Jimmy, the wonderful thing is none of us have to wait for a presidential statement or an executive order to be issued. We don't have to have an act of Congress. We don't even have to wait for our whole nation to turn and do something that we'd like to see happen. We can apply this in our personal lives. Mm. We can go out and we can seek to desire to be a blessing to the people of Israel and determine that we are going to act uh, whether or not any president says or does anything in the future, we're going to be like Washington and Truman and Nixon and Reagan and Trump, at least in this respect. We're going to go out and do something bold and daring that will be a blessing to these of whom God has said, I will bless those who bless you. And to know for sure that when God makes a promise and he makes a covenant with people, he's going to fulfill that and he will use world leaders to accomplish his will. Paul, thank you so Absolutely. much for joining with us. And I hope that folks will go to foiequip.org and get access to the video to watch the class and to uh, continue their in-depth study as they study Bible prophecy. Paul, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to being with you again. Thanks, Jimmy, for this opportunity. God bless you. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, as we are now focusing on the book to the Jewish people, the book of the prophet Ezekiel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This week, we're focusing on the book, Sound the Trumpets, or the four major trends of Bible prophecy. Rick, if folks wanted to add this to their library, how would they get this book? Certainly, Jimmy, if you would like to add this book, and also, Jimmy, a copy of our DVD documentary, Ready to Rebuild, we'd love to have you call our office. If you call our office for a donation of any amount, we would love to send you a copy of the book and the DVD. You can also go to our bookstore online and get a digital copy in PDF format of the Sound the Trumpets book. Yes, that is prophecytoday.com is where you go. Click on the link to the bookstore and it will take you there. You'll see it. It's uh, This book really talks about all the major actors in place and the stage is set. Well, on our Legacy Series this week, on our broadcast, we're going to continue our study of God's plan through the ages with a focus on the book of Ezekiel. We are looking at God's chosen people, the Jewish people, and the part that they will play in God's overall plan. The fact is, is that the Jewish people are key to God's plan. We looked at the ancient Jewish prophet Ezekiel last week and his call to be a prophet, a unique man with a unique message. We'll see how unique he really is in our study today. We'll start in Ezekiel chapter 4, and we'll look at Ezekiel the prophet with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. If you know anything about a prophet, he's supposed to be pronouncing prophetic truth or truth of what's the judgment to come going to be. And Ezekiel's going to do that, but in unique ways. 
He tells him to lay in the street. I said he's going to be a street preacher. He literally tells him to lay in the street. In chapter 4, that's what he tells him. Look at verse 5. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And then thou shalt have, have accomplished them. Lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity for the house of Judah 40 days. 390 days he lays on his left side in the middle of the street. 40 days on his right side. 430 days he's laying in the street. Now what kind of a prophet is this? He has no capability of speaking unless the Lord loosens his tongue. He's laying in the middle of the street for 430 days. And then the Lord says something really unique to him. He says, now I know you're going to probably get hungry, hungry Ezekiel. He said, I'm going to give you a little bit of meat. I'm going to give you a little bit of water. And I'm going to give you ingredients to prepare your bread. Look at here. Here's what he says. Verse 9. Take thou also unto thee wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and finches and put them into one vessel and make thee bread. Now come, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Look here what he says in verse 10. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be of the weight about twenty shekels a day. That's about eight ounces of meat. Verse 11. And thou shalt drink also water by the measure of six part of a hen. And that's about a quarter of water a day. Now here it is. He's got a little bit of meat, eight ounces. He's got a little bit of water, a quarter of water. He gives him the ingredients for bread. But let me tell you what he's going to do. He's going to tell Ezekiel to take a bowel movement in public and take the human excrement and put it together and bake his bread. You think I'm making that up? Look at verse 12. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. That's what I said. He's going to tell Ezekiel to take a bowel movement in their sight, in public. Take the human excrement, put it together, light it, and bake your bread. That's somewhat of a prophet, isn't it? Street preacher. He's doing something. He's getting the attention of the people. What's interesting to me, the Lord then remembers, hey, wait a minute, Deuteronomy. I gave Moses Deuteronomy, and I made the statement of Deuteronomy. Uh, it's not kosher to take a bowel movement in public. And so he changes what he wants Ezekiel to do. He said, Ezekiel, you don't have to take the bowel movement in public. You don't have to use human excrement to bake your bread. You can use cow dung. Look here in verse 15. Then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. I'm sure Ezekiel must have said, hey, thanks a lot, God. That's a lot better. I much rather smell cow's dung than the other, you know. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be vulgar. I'm showing you God told Ezekiel to be a prophet unto his people. And God is going to use this man in a unique way. In chapter 5, you know what he tells him? Cut the hair off your head. Cut the hair off your face. Put it in three piles, the hair in three piles. Pick up your sword. Stab one pile. Somehow light one pile and let it burn. And then the other pile, take it and throw it in the air. He's telling Ezekiel what he's going to do. You can read chapter 5 as well as I can. I don't have to read it for you. But let me tell you what that's talking about. Ezekiel is getting a message of retribution. Retribution against the Jewish people. And God is telling Ezekiel, when I let the Babylonians come into Jerusalem, they're going to burn the city down. And one-third of all the Jews are going to burn to death. Those that try to escape, my military will use the sword and kill them. One-third of them. And then the other third that's left, we're going to take them into the Babylonian captivity. God is using Ezekiel. 
Without going to the 24th chapter, I can tell you what happens over there. In the 24th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, the pride of Ezekiel's life, his wife, dies the next morning. God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die tomorrow morning. Don't you dare get up and mourn. You see, in a Jewish family, when somebody dies, they mourn for a seven-day period of time. It's called pronouncing Sheva. Sheva is seven in Hebrew. And for seven days, they mourn the death of their loved one. God says to Ezekiel, don't you dare pronounce Sheva. Don't you mourn. Get up, put your clothes on, fix your hair, get ready, and go do a prophet's work. Isn't that interesting? Makes him a watchman. Tells him to say what he gives him to say and warn the people. The people are going to mock him. Don't let it bother you. I'm going to make your head harder than theirs. And lay on the ground on your left side for 390 days, on your right side for 40 days. 430 days you'll lay in the street. And I'm not going to make you bake your bread over human excrement that you did in public. I'm going to let you use cow manure to bake your bread. But I'm going to use you as a prophet. Do you know why Ezekiel did all of those things without hesitation? Go back to chapter 1 just for a second. And I'm not going to explain chapter 1 except to say this much. God used a throne chariot. It's four cherubim. And they're described here. Four cherubim. There's three types of angels. Actually, four types. The archangels would be a type. But there are seraphim, Isaiah 6, cherubim, Ezekiel 1, throne room angels, Revelation 4, and then Gabriel and Michael, the archangels. Those are the types of angels. Here in chapter 1, he uses four cherubim. They're described with four faces and four wings. They form a throne. They form a throne chariot. Look over here in verse 26 of chapter 1. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. And he allows the throne, this throne chariot to come out of the heavenlies down to the earth. Verse 28. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, it was a part of this throne chariot. So was the appearance of the brightness round about who was in this throne chariot. This was the appearance of the likeness, look at here, of the glory of the Lord. You know why Ezekiel did everything that God told him to do, which seemed ridiculous? Take a bow moment, make your bread over it, lay in the street for 430 days, don't mourn when your wife dies, cut your hair off and stab it, burn it, or throw it in the air. You know why he did it? Listen, he saw the glory of the Lord. He saw the glory of the Lord. Maybe that's our problem. Maybe we're not obedient because we have never seen the glory of the Lord. You say, well, wait a minute, Dr. DeYoung. You believe in visions? No, I don't believe in visions. I don't believe that Jesus is making any appearance now. But we can still see the glory of the Lord. Do you not remember Psalm 19, verse 1? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and his handiwork declare the glory of the Lord. We can see the glory of the Lord. When's the last time you just went out and looked up in the heavens? Do you know what happened on the fourth day of creation, Genesis 1? You know what happened on the fourth day? The first part of the day, Jesus, who was the creator, put the sun up in the sky. And then he put the moon up in the sky. And it's almost as if he was finished with his work that day, and he starts to walk away, and he says, oh, and the stars also, four words and the stars also. Do you understand what's up there in the heavens? Einstein said, Einstein said, in our galaxy alone, there are 12 octaves.
billion stars. You know how many stars that is? Well, I don't know how to explain it except it's a one with 98 zeros behind it. That's one octillion. There's 12 octillion stars in our galaxy. And do you know what they tell me? The astronomers tell me there are one billion, that's a B, one billion galaxies out there. And Jesus said, and the stars also. <laughs> I love it. And the stars also. And all we need to do to see the glory of the Lord is simply look up in the heavens. And his handiwork, his handiwork. One of my favorite characters is the woodpecker. The, you know, and there's a passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 says that the scientists today are going to be willfully ignorant of God creating everything. I don't like that interpretation of the Word of God. It's King James, but, and I use King James, but I don't like that interpretation, willfully ignorant. I think there's a better interpretation. It's mine. Here it is. Those scientists are going to be dumb on purpose. How about that? Is that better? Dumb on purpose. The woodpecker. They try to say the woodpecker evolved. Have you ever thought about the woodpecker? The woodpecker is one of the most unique birds in all the world. How could a blue jay evolve into a woodpecker? There's no way. Let me tell you what happens. If a blue jay was trying to be a woodpecker, the, the blue jay would fly up to a tree and the blue jay would put his claws into the tree. You see, his claws face up like this. And when he took his beak and tried to peck against the tree, two things would happen. First of all, his beak would go right through his brain and he'd fall off the tree because he's only holding on like this. Now, a woodpecker, look how I invert my hand. The woodpecker has his claws facing downward. And when he lands on the tree, he puts them into the tree. He's got a very strong tail that he puts and he's in a tripod. And when he takes his beak, he pecks against the tree, and the membrane behind his, the back of his head is so solid that the beak can't go through the membrane to get to his brain. So he pecks against the tree. And so he's not going to fall off the tree. He's trying to drill a hole into the tree to find a worm. By the way, do you know what? with what force of power he hits that? He pecks against that tree 15 times every second. You want to know what kind of force that is? After this is over, go outside, find you a tree standing out there, get back about 40 feet, start running as fast as you can, and run smack into the tree. That's the force with which a woodpecker takes his beak and pecks against the tree. Oh, by the way, if a blue jay tried to peck into a tree, if he could ever get in there, you know how the, you have to try to get the worm, you dig a hole into the tree? Well, he takes his little tongue, he can't go very far with that small little that he has and so he takes his tongue and he he tries to stick it in there and grab the worm the, the blue jay has a tongue about that long the woodpecker has a tongue about this long it's wrapped around his head it has a hook on the end of it and has a special gluish substance on the end of it and he sticks his tongue into that tree grabs that worm the gluish substance adheses the worm to the tongue he pulls it out and has a wonderful meal can you imagine a blue jay trying to do that you know, what I said, they are dumb on purpose. And that's exactly what is unfolding in the whole evolutionary world, exactly what is taking place. Well, why did I give you that illustration? That's the glory of the Lord. Have you, you know what our problem is? We don't stop to smell the roses. That's out there. And that's what Ezekiel saw, the glory of the Lord. Now, that's how he was able to be the prophet who would give a message of retribution, a message of judgment. That's chapters 1 to 32.
the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel have been a message of retribution, judgment on the Jewish people and on the neighbors of the Jewish people. God used Ezekiel, a unique man with a unique message, to give these prophecies. Next week, we'll look at the last 16 chapters of Ezekiel and see how the prophet has a message of restoration. These will be the prophecies of the restoration of the Jewish people to their land, the land of their forefathers, and what happens as these prophecies begin to be fulfilled. It will be a very interesting study, and it will help us to understand the current events of our day. Please join us next week. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We have a commentary that Dr. Jimmy DeYoung wrote, and you can get that at our bookstore. We've got to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Zimbabweans went to the polls yesterday to elect a new president. Incumbent President Emerson Mnangagwa ran for re-election. Two weeks ago, he made a shocking promise on the campaign trail that anyone who votes for his party would go to heaven. Unfortunately, Greg Yoder of Christian World Outreach says prosperity gospel pandering is a struggle for Zimbabwe ministries discipling believers. Pray for a peaceful election outcome and for wise biblical leaders. And E3 Partners launched a new three-year campaign this year called Greater Together. They're raising $50 million to mobilize 1,000 new full-time ministries, adopt over 12,000 people groups in places that still need the gospel, and train over 4 million people to share their faith. Don Waybright with E3 asks for prayer as they steward what God has given them for the Great Commission. Get details on the campaign and find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with Rick. We are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, this week we focused on the book, Sound the Trumpets, Four Major Trends of Bible Prophecy, focusing on the return of the Jewish people, Aliyah, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, and the prophetic nature of how this has all taken place within our lifetime. It really started before our lifetime in 1948. We're going to focus on the Aliyah just for a second. But Rick, I wanted to specifically talk to you about Ken Timmerman brought up the fact that we need 
to be discerning as to where we get our news today. And and I just thought I would ask you this question. As we do this program, I know we've talked about it before, but how do we determine which stories to focus on when we're doing the program? Well, Jimmy, when we're putting this program together, we're not doing a newspaper read of a Bible prophecy program, but what we're doing is we're taking our knowledge of Bible prophecy and looking for things that are taking place in the world today that basically act as signposts, Jimmy. They they are acting as indicators of things that are going to take place in the future. Many of these things are going to take place not long after the rapture of the church and throughout the tribulation period. And these things, the stage is being set for these things. And the more we read the news, the more we look at the news, we see we see these things progressing and it's it's it's, it's impossible to miss. So that's how we well, what they call nowadays curate the news. We curate the news that we put together, and this is the things that we talk to our broadcast partners about. And one thing that Ken said is develop sources, develop sources that you know. Well, people that we know, we've been at different conferences with them. We've uh, spent time with them. We know where their view is coming from. They are trusted news sources for us and good communicators as well. So that is why we put these people out there. We hope and we are honored and privileged if we are a news source for our listeners. And and then, of course, as we relate this to Bible prophecy, we hope that it gives them encouragement as they look at what's going on in the world today. Yes. And, you know, as we get into this presidential year, there's so much going on. In fact, if you watch the news, if you are a Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, any one of the uh, social media platforms that you use, you can be inundated with so much information. And I, I really would say, and, and I'm having to, I feel like I need to pull myself back, Rick, from a lot of the social media because now there's so much false news out there. And I'm not just talking about, you know, those networks, um, ABC, CBS, NBC. I mean, they do report the news. It's a matter of being able, and I remember dad used to say, you know, we can eat the watermelon and spit out the seeds. We can use some of those sources to help us. But, you know, you do have to be careful and curate. I like what Ken said. I like what you what you do. And I think it's important, which is why we're focusing this week on the four major trends of Bible prophecy, because as I watch people, uh, we understand that God uses, and this is Revelation seventeen seventeen. God uses world leaders to accomplish his will, not our will, not what we think that we need to live and, you know, how uh, we expect the world to go. We're not going to save the political platform here in America, but we should be more interested, Rick, in saving people and using the formula, the four major trends of Bible prophecy. It helps us to understand why world leaders are doing what they're doing, uh, decisions that are being made, and it really could be that God is using these leaders to accomplish his will to bring us to the timeline, that final timeline of Bible prophecy, um, beginning with the, the next event, the rapture of the church. I believe it could happen at any moment. It's an imminent event. And by knowing that, that's the next event 
But we see how close we are because we are, like you said, seeing events that are happening today that are setting up events that will take place in the tribulation period. So I think it's important, Rick, and I really appreciate the fact that uh, as you talked with David Dolan and even Dad as he was there, you and I have been there when we were a part of seeing lots of Russian Jews come to the land of Israel, Ethiopians. We have been there and we have witnessed the Aliyah, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Well, that's right, Jimmy. And and you just mentioned it. It's so important. And we talked about it last week, keeping the main thing, the main thing, making sure that as we look at things that are taking place, we have a biblical grounding, a biblical base. And when you talk about Aliyah, you look at that situation. We know what the Bible says. And as we put together the book, Sound the Trumpets, it talks about Jewish people returning from all over the world, from the north. And we talked about the Russian Jews. From the south, we talked about the Ethiopian Jews coming. And the Bible talks about that. So through our study of Scripture, we were able to recognize, hey, this is what the Bible says would happen, and now it's happening right before our very eyes. Helps us to locate where we are in Scripture. Micah 4, six talks about, In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth. I will regather her that is driven out, her that I have afflicted. Aliyah, that Hebrew word that means ascend, It refers today to the Jewish people returning to the land of Israel or coming to the land of Israel 64 times in Scripture. Amos chapter 9 verse 14 talks about a time, and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and shall plant vineyards and drink of the vine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. Rick, we have seen that physically. We have seen the return of the Jewish people. And as we watch this, we know that this is one of the indicators. We're going to cover the other three, but this is one of the indicators, the Aliyah of the Jewish people, the return to the land of Israel, that we know that we are living in that time where God will bring them again. And that's when he will be their God, but they must be regathered to the land of Israel and This is the time as we watch this taking place that this is how we know that we're getting closer to the rapture of the church as these people are regathered, as the Jewish people are regathered to the land of Israel. Rick, thanks so much for doing the legwork on the program today, your interviews, your uh, covering of the news with Ken, David Dolan, us uh, talking and recalling the events that we have witnessed and helping us to see where we are and understand the times in which we're living. Jimmy, you know, the reason we do this is so that we can understand the times in which we are living in, and I'm so happy to be able to do that. The rapture of the church could happen at any moment, and with the things that we have seen, it could be in the very next moment. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.